you would please stand. We're going to look this morning at Jonah chapter 4 on page 775 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed out for you in the bulletin on the blue sheet. I'm going to read for you Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to send the Holy Spirit powerfully upon us this morning. Pry open our cold and resistant hearts. Give us grace, Father, that we might discover more and more and more about your great love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It'd be a good thing if you had the Bible open in front of you. And if you take the blue sheet, you can use it as a bookmark, and it has at the bottom three points that I'll be referring to this morning, and uh, working together, I hope that we can wind up uh, at the same place at the same time, and that you will, with me, see a little bit about what I've called the Discovering Church. Um, I've never been to Iraq, but if you were to go to Mosul, Iraq, 250 miles north of Baghdad, you'd find that it lies on the banks of the Tigris River and is today the third largest city in Iraq, Mosul. You might have heard it in some of the recent news reports. It shows up from time to time. It was a battleground uh, over many years and uh, shows up in some of the news reports. Uh, On the eastern bank of the Tigris River lies the ruins of Nineveh, which we read about uh, in the book of Jonah. 
Uh, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And would you believe, for 50 years, Mosul, or Nineveh, was the largest city in the world. For 50 years, scholars estimate that for 50 years, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. It was their equivalent of New York City. Uh, According to Jonah chapter 4, there were 120,000 people who lived there and some cattle. And that's about the size of Carrollton. So uh, at the time, Nineveh, the, the largest city in the world, was about the size of Carrollton, Texas. Well, if you were to go to Mosul today, you'd find that Mosul, the modern-day Iraqi city, is built around the ruins of ancient Nineveh. And right in the middle of the ancient ruins, you would find an ancient tomb. Uh, You might have read about the tomb uh, because it was bombed by ISIS, um, the terrorist group that kind of emerged a few years ago and made a lot of headlines doing a lot of evil things around the world. Well, ISIS, on July 24th, 2014, that is seven years ago yesterday, bombed this ancient tomb in the middle of ancient Nineveh. And that ancient tomb, for eons, was recognized as the burial place of Jonah. Uh, It was called the Tomb of Jonah. It was built uh, into a Christian church. And over the millennia, it became a Muslim mosque. And now, sadly, it is a pile of rubble. Uh, Jonah's tomb has been destroyed, um, which is a great tragedy for us, of course, culturally and for lots of reasons to see such an ancient uh, landmark, something of great significance historically, to be destroyed as it was. Well, that was in my mind this week as I was getting ready to preach from Jonah chapter 4, this ancient city, Nineveh, that today is sort of reduced and humbled so much, but in its day was of such enormous importance for lots of reasons. I'd like for us to look at this last chapter in the short book of Jonah, which describes the interaction of God's prophet, Jonah, with the city of Nineveh, the largest city in the world at the time. The chapter we're looking at, Jonah chapter 4, is one of several lows in Jonah's life and ministry, many of which are recorded in some detail in the book by his name. Now, it's interesting that we actually first meet Jonah in the Old Testament, in a high point of his life and ministry, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, uh, we have Jonah who is shown as a servant of God, a prophet, and he's a prophet who had the ear of a king, the king of the largest city in the world. Um, and no, Jonah had the privilege of speaking the word of the Lord to the king. And the king actually listened to Jonah and took his counsel. It involved, interestingly enough, with rebuilding walls at the border. And so you have this dramatic uh, 
really a huge dramatic climb to the very top where you have Jonah interacting with the king and directing what wound up being policy at a, at a, a, a national level, restoring the, the borders of, of uh, the, the northern kingdom. But uh, here in the book of Jonah, in contrast to his one reference in 2 Kings, here in the book of Jonah, uh, what we're given is a series of lows. If 2 Kings is a high, the book of Jonah is a series of lows. Uh, In Jonah chapter 1, Jonah disobeys the Lord and tries to flee away from him as far as he could go to a place called Tarshish. Uh, In Jonah chapter 2, he's shown to be in the midst of well-earned judgment in the belly of a great fish. Uh, In in fact, according to Jonah, it's in the belly of Sheol, the the place of the dead, the the final place at the very bottom of all things. And at the end of chapter 2, Jonah is shown on the beach, literally covered in fish vomit. I don't think you can get a whole lot lower Then Jonah chapter 2, in the very last verse, he's vomited out on the beach. And uh, that's that's the Jonah we see at the end of chapter 2. In Jonah chapter 3, the prophet kind of bounces back. You heard about this last week in Colin's excellent sermon. Uh, Jonah bounces back to at least go where the Lord told him to go. That's That's a good starting place. He at least was willing to go where God told him to go. The the fish vomit at least gave him enough intelligence and discernment to realize that it's a good thing to go where God tells you to go. So Jonah went, and he goes to Nineveh, as he had been told to in the beginning. But uh, the sermon he delivers to the city of Nineveh, as Colin pointed out, as it's recorded here in the Bible, really has only one virtue, and that's its brevity. Uh, It was a short sermon, and let me tell you, to this day, short sermons are very popular. But otherwise, Jonah's sermon would have flunked any homiletic seminary class. Because uh, all he said was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now whether that's the sermon in its entirety, uh, or a summary, as Colin suggested, we don't really know. But whether it's the full sermon or simply the summary of the full sermon, it's not exactly the most attractive sermon that I can imagine. And yet that's the sermon that Jonah is shown presenting. Uh, Jonah's homiletic skills notwithstanding, the people repent from the greatest of them to the least of them, says the book of Jonah, and that included the king in his palace and the animals in the farmyard. They were all covered with sackcloth and ashes. But in Jonah chapter 3, where else is Jonah? Uh, there's really just this one reference. He, he shows up, he delivers the message, and then he completely disappears from the rest of the, rest of the book, rest of the chapter. Where is Jonah? What was he doing? What was his reaction as he began to see all these things happening? Uh, Chapter 3 isn't exactly his lowest point, but it's his most absent point. He's he's, he's just there as the preacher, and we're not told anything else about him in Jonah chapter 3. But Jonah chapter 4 somehow, amazingly, makes it possible for Jonah the prophet, the preacher to kings, the servant of God, to be reduced even further to what can only be described as pouting. He pouts 
Jonah chapter 4 is a chapter-long description of Jonah the prophet pouting. Uh, We just got back from a family reunion in Colorado. We had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, But let me tell you, there was just a little bit of pouting. Um, uh, We had all the kids who were there. They were stirred up and, you know, driving and being in a new place and having lots of new things to do. Uh, The kids were all there. And and, um, and then Leslie and I were there pouting. And uh, mostly me. It's exhausting. Uh, but it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful time. But let me tell you, after a week of that, I know just a tiny bit more about pouting. Uh, pouting is, is not the proudest thing human beings do. And yet here in Jonah chapter 4, we have a full chapter of Jonah pouting. He's just preached this sermon in Jonah chapter 3. God has just wrought this amazing work. And here in Jonah chapter 4, we have Jonah reacting in a way that can only be called pouting. Look at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's where pouting often begins. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Think of those two words, my country. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now you'd think that would be a hymn of praise, but look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's just rehearsed the amazing mercy of God, and yet Jonah says, Okay, it would be better for me to die than to live. Just to hear his voice going up a couple of octaves as he's complaining to the Lord about how amazingly merciful he is and slow to anger, abounding in love. The pouting prophet. It continues in in, uh, in verse 2 with this rehearsal. And then in in verse 3, He sums it up with his desire to die. I mean, isn't that just kind of where pouting always leads? Just the ultimate, I just wish I was dead. I may have heard that once or twice uh, at various times when I've been pouting. It's just so awful. Uh, In verse 4, God gives Jonah a reality check. We'll come back to that. In verse 5, Jonah continues to pout. He went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city. And made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Here you in verse 5, it's almost as if Jonah still wants to maybe catch a glimpse of Nineveh being destroyed. Sort of like ISIS. He kind of wanted to catch a glimpse of ISIS destroying Nineveh. In verse 8, sorry, verses 6 to 8, it reaches almost comic proportions um, Jonah is there, he, he is angry, he's watching the city, hoping to see something happen. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad about the plant. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die again. 
he, uh, he calls out to the Lord and says, it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, it really is uh, it's laughable how the prophet is being so childish. He gets all excited because God mercifully gives this little tiny display of grace with this plant that pops up for one day. And he has a day of not having the sun beating down on his head. And he's very glad for that. But then the next day, one day later, a worm pops up, sent by the Lord to teach Jonah a lesson. The worm eats the plant and Jonah's ready to die again. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly childish. What an amazing story to see a man go from counseling kings and directing national policy and delivering a word from the sovereign God to pouting. And whining about his wanting to die, he's just fed up. That's, that's the story of Jonah. It's, it's a remarkable story. What a, what a remarkably honest story. Verse 9, uh, you have the Lord repeating the question from verse 4. It's, it's, essentially, it's essentially the same question, slightly expanded. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry? He's asked Jonah that question now twice. Do you do well to be angry? See, Jonah essentially was angry because he does not yet understand. He does not yet understand. He has limited understanding. Limited understanding of God. Limited understanding of God and his purposes. So you get a picture of this prophet who had so much and knew so much. But he has limited understanding. You know, uh, I can relate a lot to Jonah. (laughs) Um, Did you know, last week... um, July the 22nd was the 32nd anniversary of my ordination. Uh, I always try to mark that day with Thanksgiving. It was 32 years ago, uh, July 22nd, that God in his amazing grace uh, led me, called me into ordained ministry. I was ordained at a little church in Anchorage, Alaska. And having completed three years of seminary, And I can tell you, 32 years later, uh, I am more and more and more conscious of how limited my understanding still is. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time. And yet there are these moments where our life bumps up against our understanding. where We just don't. Get it. I mean, I've had moments like that lately. A number of times, just through, through experiences in my own life, through experiences in, in the lives of people that I love very much, where we just, we just bump headfirst into this realization that we don't fully understand God's sovereign purposes. And it's, it's not always our proudest moments. We kind of bump into it, And uh, sometimes we handle it in a mature way. There is a mature way of handling that. 
But very often, if you're anything like me, perhaps you have occasionally dealt with it in an immature way. Perhaps if you're anything like me, even after many years, perhaps you've dealt with it in a childish, maybe even a slightly pouting way where we bump into this God who we acknowledge. Jonah never fails to acknowledge God. Go through the whole letter, the whole book. Jonah never fails to acknowledge there is a God. He never fails to acknowledge that there's a God who reigns over stuff. But when it comes right down to the moment where his understanding is limited, he doesn't like it. He gets angry. He gets irritated. Maybe you've been there. I certainly have. I have been there recently. Well, we are woefully and dangerously mistaken if we ever think we have God completely figured out. That we have somehow domesticated him. And that he thinks exactly like we think. We have made a woeful and dangerous mistake. That's what we see here in Jonah chapter 4. A woeful mistake that could have been a very dangerous mistake. Well, back to Jonah. Like me, like you, like all of us, Jonah had a limited understanding of God and his purposes. And that brings us to point two. Uh, There's our limited understanding. And the second point is God's unlimited love. You see, the sovereign God that Jonah acknowledged is also the loving God that irritated Jonah and that sometimes confuses us. Because we have our categories, we have our ways of thinking about it. And when God does something that doesn't fit into our way of thinking about it, well, sometimes we don't respond very well. Now, the point that had Jonah particularly confused, I think, is a timely point for all of us. See, the thing that had Jonah confused and the thing he was reacting against is specifically God's amazing love. Look at what he says in his own words. This is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. <laughs> he admits it. That's why he fled. That's what had him so upset. Now, that's not always what has us upset, but that's what had Jonah very, very upset. He was confused and he was very upset by God's amazing love, the breadth of his love. It was confusing to Jonah. Why was it confusing? Well, you see, Jonah knew that God loved Israel. Jonah knew that Israel was God's covenant people. Every little Jewish child, every little citizen of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they all knew that God loved his covenant people, that he had a plan for his covenant people, and Jonah knew that. Even when Israel uh, split into two kingdoms, Israel, the northern kingdom in the north, and Judah to the south, every Jew, every child of Abraham knew that as a part of Israel, this is to 
paraphrase Bill Bright from Campus Crusade for Christ, God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. Uh, Jonah knew that. But Jonah, you see, here in this book, is discovering that God, again to paraphrase, paraphrase Bill Bright, God loved the world. God has a wonderful plan for the world. Not just Israel. Not just the visible covenant of people, covenant people that, that they looked around and could recognize and they, they did the same things and ate the same food. Uh, they, they were a clearly identified group of people. Jonah's discovering that God actually has a plan for the whole world. That God, as John 3.16 says, loves the world. He loves the world. He loves all the peoples of the world, all the nations, all the languages, all the tribes. God loves the whole world, not just one little tribe. Jonah, it's interesting, and in, the, in verse 2, Jonah says, this is what I said when I was yet in my country. My country. The place with the borders that he'd helped build, the walls. My country. God has a plan for my country. But Jonah wasn't yet completely comfortable with the understanding that God has a plan for the whole world. And so, uh, verse 10 is the conclusion of the book. Uh, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. In other words, they were completely ignorant when it came to spiritual things. When it, when it came to the most important things, they were completely ignorant. They didn't know their left hand from the right hand. Great country, great city, great power. But they didn't even know their left hand from their right hand. God said, shouldn't I have pity? Shouldn't I have mercy on them, Jonah? So, Jonah chapter 4, the book of Jonah, closes, interestingly, with a question. It's it's one of only two books in the Bible that close with a question. Uh, Lamentations closes with a question, and the book of Jonah closes with an unanswered question. Should I not have pity? Jonah doesn't stick around to answer. We're, We're not told what Jonah thought from this point onwards. In fact, Jonah closes this book with the question. He's not anywhere else in the Old Testament. He's shown one glimpse of him as a prophet and then in the book. That's all we know about Jonah from these four chapters. Um, but I want to I tell you something about uh, the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah's book is about discovering God's unlimited love. Jonah is discovering God's unlimited love. Um, One of the things I love about Metrocrest, I've only been here, I think, what is it, eight months? Uh, I've been here eight months, and 
One thing that has come to mean more and more and more and more to me is our slogan, (laughs) our motto, uh, the bumper sticker. Uh, It's our purpose statement. And if you go back to the very first church bulletin for Metro Crest Presbyterian Church 32 years ago, this October, on the cover it said, Discovering God's Love and Sharing It with Others. You probably heard it so much, you may not hear it anymore. (laughs) But you'll notice it shows up in our bulletin. And in a few minutes when we have our budget presentation, my one contribution to the budget presentation is, uh, Will and the deacons and the elders put together the budget. Um, My one contribution, I said, let's put our purpose statement on the budget presentation. Let's make it clear that there is a connection between our budget and our purpose. These aren't two separate things. Our budget, if we're doing this right, will flow from our purpose. And our purpose is very simple, to discover God's love and to share it with other people. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what Jonah is discovering here in the book of Jonah. He's discovering the depth and the breadth of God's limitless love. He is discovering that God has a plan for all the nations of the world. And he's a part of it. He's discovering God's love and he's actually sharing it. We see a glimpse of it in Jonah 3. Now, I want to conclude my sermon this morning and my sermon series on Jonah with a reference to something that is semi-hypothetical. I've called it Jonah chapter 5. Jonah famously has four short chapters. Let me tell you about Jonah chapter 5. And like the Westminster Confession says, this this follows from uh, good and clear logic. All right? This, This is good and clear logic. One of the things that jumps out about the book of Jonah is it is a narrative. Unlike the other prophets, which are a record of the explicit prophecies of the prophet, the book of Jonah is the life story of a prophet. It's telling a story of a prophet who's discovering something about God's love. Well, some of the things recorded in the book of Jonah could only be there for one of two reasons. Either someone made it up, it's a story with, a, with a sort of a, um, a point to it, someone made up the story, well, of course, as Christians, we don't believe that. The second way we could know about it is because Jonah recorded it. Maybe he wrote it down, but maybe he shared it. I mean, I like to think that Jonah shared what he was discovering about God's amazing, unlimited love. I'd like to think that what we actually have in the book of Jonah is the fruit of a Jonah who has been humbled, who has been um, taught to arise, a Jonah who has discovered and a Jonah who has been moved by the Holy Spirit to write down for the benefit of God's Old Testament covenant people and to the benefit of God's New Testament covenant people, one people, this wonderful lesson about God's 
unlimited love. And I think that's what we have here. There's a reason why Jonah's tomb traditionally is in Mosul. It's in Nineveh. The good and obvious logical conclusion is uh, Jonah chapter 4 closes with this question, this unanswered question. Jonah spent the rest of his life in Mosul, in Nineveh, living out what he had been proclaiming, teaching, coming alongside the people as he had opportunity. Did he counsel kings? Who knows? Did he counsel the lowest of the low? Who knows? But he stayed in Nineveh. He, he taught the people that had responded in Jonah chapter 3. He, he continued to do what he had begun to do, what he had begun to discover. That's often the way it is with discovering God's love. As we discover God's love, we live it out by sharing it with other people. You can't really discover God's love without sharing it. And you certainly can't share it until you've discovered it. So Jonah chapter 5 includes all of Jonah, but it also includes the rest of the Old Testament. And get this, it also includes the Gospels. Because you remember in in Matthew, the, the Magi, where did they come from? The West, the East, sorry, the East, very significantly the East. The East shows up again and again here in chapter 4. Jonah's always looking to the East, to the East. It's from the East that the Magi, these first people to respond, these first Gentiles to respond to the gospel, came from the area where Jonah, centuries and centuries and centuries earlier, had begun to preach the limitless love of God. Where people had responded according to their understanding, the level of understanding they had, they repented, they called out to him. This, these tiny baby steps, those same people, centuries later, sent the wise men. They were from the wise men who came and bowed at the birthplace of Jesus. It's amazing to think that centuries later, there would be fruit from the work of Jonah in Nineveh through all of the crazy history of that crazy part of the world, that the the Magi was this tiny echo from centuries. You never know. Youth group leaders, Sunday school teachers, you plant these seeds. You never know how God is going to use them. See, God doesn't just think in days like Jonah was upset about the plant for one day. God doesn't think just in days or weeks, or months, or years, or centuries. He thinks of the whole picture. And teachers, Sunday school teachers, moms, dads, youth group leaders, when we plant these tiny seeds, you never know how, over the time of God, how he will be working through it to bring good out of it. And that's what we get from Jonah chapter 5. Jonah working there in Nineveh, the fruit over the centuries, and people in the wise men coming and responding as they, they came from the east to see the child. Um, the book of Acts. The next Sunday, we go back to the book of Acts. One of the reasons we took July to look at Jonah is because Jonah has everything to say about the book of Acts. It's interesting, in, in, in the book of Acts, the church discovers 
God's amazing love. They discover that God actually has a plan and it goes from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the earth. The whole world. They're still discovering God's sovereign purposes. They're still discovering God's limitless love. We're discovering it. Next Sunday, we're going to have a missionary come and talk to us. We have missionaries among us today who are going back to the part of the world where Jesus walked, where Jonah lived. We're going back with that same saving gospel, being reminded that God loves the people who live in Mosul, Iraq. He still does. And what an irony that ISIS in its evil, in its hatred, in its anger, destroyed the tomb of the man who gave his life to bring the gospel at that point to them. They destroyed Isn't that what the world does? I mean, ISIS is just this concentration of the world's evil, the world's way of looking at things. My country, me, 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 my people, not yours. Isn't that what the world has always done? That's what the world has always done. In the book of Acts is this realization that the God who reigns over us does not think that way. The God who reigns over us loves the world and has actually commissioned the church to be the discovering church as we discover God's love to share it and 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 share it. Here in Carrollton and across the Metro Crest neighborhoods to cross Texas, across the country and around the world and our little tiny church gets to be a part of it. And I get to be a part of it and you get to be a part of it. We're doing the Jonah church. We're living out the discovering church today. Three millennia later, we're still discovering, we're still proclaiming, we're still living it out. And the book of Acts is this beautiful description of how that begins to happen. And then finally, the book of Revelation. I've got to mention the book of Revelation because it's the exclamation point, isn't it, James? It's the exclamation point to everything. Because what we're told in the book of Revelation is not a series of scary stories. We're told here at the end of the Bible that God has a plan for the whole world and it will succeed. I mean, that's the most amazing thing about the book of Jonah. Jonah goes and he preaches a substandard sermon uh, that wouldn't convince very many people of anything and the whole city, the largest city in the world responds. Why? Why? Because there's an invisible sovereign God who is working through his discovering church doing the stuff we can't do. He does stuff we can't even think of. He works. He accomplishes. And so the book of Revelation is meant to give us hope and confidence. The book of Acts is meant to stir us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to teach us that there is a God who is adding daily to our number. That's a refrain that goes right through the book of of, uh, Acts. And it shows up in the book of Revelation when we discover that there will be countless, multitudes of multitudes of every language, tribe, and nation, including Nineveh, including Mosul. There will be people there praising the Lord, worshiping Him, giving thanks to Him for His great goodness to us in Christ. So the answer is, to Jonah 4 verse 11 and the answer to Jonah chapter 5 is Jesus. Jesus is the 
embodied, incarnate expression of how much our sovereign God loves us and how profound his plans are for us. And today, the year of grace 2021, we look with hope and confidence and faith towards the fulfillment of the book of Jonah and Jonah 5 and Acts and Revelation. So next week, we open our Bibles to the New Testament, and what we will discover is the same God at work there as he is in Jonah and as he is here.